Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. My name is Abdul Leroy. Beloveds, here is the final part of the final section of the final version, I hope, of the Gourmet Gospel. Enjoy! The Pharisees Quotes Christ's chief war was against the Pharisees. That is the war every child of light has to wage, against their dull respectability, their tedious orthodoxy. Christ mocked at the whited sepulchres of respectability. He would not hear of life being sacrificed to any system of thought or morals. Orthodoxy was a terrible and paralyzing tyranny. Christ swept it aside. Oscar Wilde, De Profundis for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15 The devil can cite scripture for his purpose. An evil soul producing holy witness is like a villain with a smiling cheek, a goodly apple rotten at the heart. Oh, what a godly outside falsehood hath! Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice The spirit of accusation, of course, finds its expression on earth too, and the Pharisees of Jesus' day are its embodiment and archetype. Throughout the Gospels, this hateful breed oppose him at every turn, dogging his footsteps, trying to trap him in his words, accusing, slandering, and ever plotting against him. Near the end, Christ tears into this brood of vipers, these blind guides, hypocrites, and snakes, as he calls them, with brilliant and devastating fury, likening them to whited sepulchres, outwardly beautiful, but full of filth and death within. The Pharisee is a hypocrite. He will masquerade as a servant of righteousness and, like Judas Iscariot, make empty declarations of virtue and say all the right things. But inwardly, he is cruel to the core, greedy, inhuman and corrupt, and always hunting for innocent blood to shed. He sets his traps, conducts his whisper campaigns, backstabs, smears and accuses. He is utterly unable or unwilling to see the contradiction between his holy declarations and his ongoing plots to slay the true of heart, and he will perform absurd contortions of logic to promote his murderous agenda. To paraphrase Jonathan Swift, the Pharisee has just enough religion to make him hate, but not enough to make him love and his venomous spirit continues to pervade religion, society, and government to this day. Straining Gnats Quotes This morbid meddling of conscience with an immaterial matter. Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter Let us not be thus over-curious to strain at atoms, and yet to stop every vent and cranny of permissive liberty, lest nature, wanting those needful pores and breathing places which God hath not debarred our weakness, 
either suddenly break out into some wide rupture of open vice and frantic heresy, or else inwardly fester with repining and blasphemous thoughts under an unreasonable and fruitless rigour of unwarranted law. John Milton He is all fault who hath no fault at all. Tennyson a Pharisee always fails to see the big picture. He is a legalist, despising those who know nothing of the law and scrutinizing minute details in the lives of others to find pretext for accusation. That is why Christ excoriates this vicious tribe who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. In his impulsive disgust with the spirit of life, a Pharisee will even decry the miracles of Christ on a technicality such as unlawful timing, as in the case of the man with the shriveled hand whom Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out, and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Instead of showing compassion for someone in need, reverence for the power of God, humility in the presence of divine power, or even curiosity about Jesus' message, the Pharisee's first priority is to shore up his power base. A Pharisee will never allow for extenuating circumstances. In Henrik Ibsen's play, A Doll's House, for instance, Torvald denounces his wife Nora as a hypocrite, a liar, a criminal, for once forging a signature to save his life. Nor will a Pharisee here please for mercy. Again, like Shylock, he will not, to do a great right, do a little wrong, but must have his pound of flesh. Shylock's counterpart in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure is Angelo, a man who scarce confesses that his blood flows or that his appetite is more to bread than stone. In full legalistic vigour, he orders the execution of Claudio for premarital coupling, but then secretly promises Claudio's sister he will be spared if she yield her virginity to him. To summarise the above cases, the gnats of a forged signature, debt default and premarital sex are punished by Pharisees who swallow, respectively, the camels of marital abuse, murder and sexual slavery. Pharisees in the Bedroom As we have seen, sexual shame is humanity's earliest affliction, and law and gnat-straining have been at their zealous worst in this arena ever since. Benjamin Franklin understood this when, in the speech of Miss Polly Baker, 1747, he adopted the guise of a woman defending herself in court for having a child out of wedlock. Laws are sometimes unreasonable in themselves and therefore repealed, 
and others bear too hard on the subject in particular circumstances. Abstracted from the law, I cannot conceive, may it please your honours, what the nature of my offence is. Reflect a little on the horrid consequences of this law in particular. What numbers have procured abortions? And how many distressed mothers have been driven by the terror of punishment and public shame to imbrue, contrary to nature, their own trembling hands in the blood of their helpless offspring? Nature would have induced them to nurse it up with a parent's fondness. Tis the law, therefore, tis the law itself that is guilty of all these barbarities and murders. Repeal it then, gentlemen. Let it be expunged forever from your books. I wonder what satire Franklin would craft for the Pharisees and gnat strainers of our age, such as psychology professor Ronald F. Levant, who was keynote speaker at a conference in April 2006, one year after his presidency of the American Psychological Association, APA, asserted, A man should get a woman's consent before thinking sexual thoughts about her. As a friend of mine who attended the conference observed, What Levant calls for is impossible, of course, and not only does it reflect ludicrous Orwellian thought-control ideology, but it shames and condemns men just for being men. Such folderol out of the mouth of an academic ideologue is one thing, but when it comes out of the mouth of a man who has held one of the highest positions in the field of mental health, it's deeply frightening to me. Precisely. Levant's formula condemns sexual desire that God created, censors thought that God has freed, humiliates and intrudes where God allows privacy. Above all, it invents and imposes a phantom law after God has put law to death. My friend's fears about the American Psychological Association were prophetic too, for around the time that Levant was straining his gnats, the APA leadership was sanctioning members' involvement in torture procedures carried out at Guantanamo Bay, the notorious US military prison. Then there's the forced resignation in 2011 of US Navy Commander Owen P. Honors after he produced video footage with sexual innuendo for the amusement of his crew. Commenting on this episode, US comedian Jimmy Dore observed, If there's anything you've got to avoid when you're killing people in war, it's sexual innuendo. You would think hired killers would be more gentlemanlike. To which fellow comedian Rob Yasamura added, the Navy's actions were part of government's concerted effort to miss the point. Also recall the uproar when actor Hugh Grant was caught in the act with a Los Angeles prostitute in 1995. Commenting on this episode, actor Rupert Everett said in an interview, Hugh Grant I was kind of with until he said that getting sucked off by Divine Brown was... What was the word he used on his big apology tour? Abominable? I thought how fantastic for him to have been given head by Divine Brown and how brilliant a career move it was. But the moment he said it was an abomination, he really lost me. I think that's one of those moments when you just say, if you don't want me, you don't have to have me. That's what I did. I got a blowjob. What of it? The media establishment also shuddered with professed shock and outrage when Janet Jackson's breast was momentarily exposed during the 2004 Super Bowl halftime show. 
Meanwhile, our entertainment industry routinely splashes human blood across our TV screens with conscience-numbing carnage, cruelty, torture, murder and mutilation. What a topsy-turvy culture we live in that strains the gnat of celebrating God's image in human sexuality but swallows the camel of mutilating it in genocidal spectacle. Among the most extreme forms of gnat straining, or in this case, sperm straining, are decrees against contraception. As Marie Stopes put it in her 1918 bestseller, Married Love, hundreds of millions of sperms are inevitably and naturally destroyed every time the man has an emission, and to add one more to those millions sacrificed by nature is surely no crime. And of course, the Monty Python team chime in with their satiric refrain from the film, The Meaning of Life. Every sperm is sacred, every sperm is great. If a sperm is wasted, God gets quite irate. Pharisees in the Church Quotes Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Henry Mencken Probably all our moral uplifters have a bad conscience. Lin Yutang, my country and my people. And in the distance, the Jesus lovers sat with hard-condemning faces and watched the sin. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath Remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, said the preacher at a Christian conference in England. Immediately a pall of despair and dejection enveloped me, even as we congregants feigned joy in carrying our offerings to the collection. What did happen to Ananias and Sapphira, according to the Book of Acts, was that they were struck dead after publicly lying to Peter about the extent of their offering. So, bearing the oppression of a preacher's guilt, a younger, gullible me wrote out a cheque for more than I could afford. Now I see the preacher's comment for what it was. Fraud, extortion and abuse of power a blasphemy of scripture that turned Christ into a mobster. The word of God is a double-edged sword. In the hands of a few ministers, a healing instrument, much like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon, but more often through the mouths of ignorant preachers blind to the complexities of truth, a crudely and cruelly wielded weapon striking at sensitive consciences. Beware the yeast of these Pharisees. See also libelous labels and freedom in feeling above. False comforters. Quotes. I don't trust a man who hasn't suffered. I don't let a man get close to me who hasn't faced his wound. John Eldridge, Wild at Heart. They tell us that the Bible is on their side. Certainly all the power is. They are rich and healthy and happy. They are members of churches expecting to go to heaven. And they get along so easy in the world and have it all their own way. And poor, honest, faithful Christians 
Christians as good or better than they, are lying in the very dust under their feet. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin A wretched soul, bruised with adversity, we bid be quiet when we hear it cry. But were we burdened with like weight of pain, as much or more we should ourselves complain. Shakespeare, Comedy of Errors John Wesley's journal of May the 1st, 1738, describes guiding principles for our little society meeting in Fetter Lane, London. Gathering once a week, they would divide into groups of five to ten people. Each person would speak as freely, plainly and concisely as he can the real state of his heart since the last time of meeting. And potential members would be asked, Will you be entirely open, using no kind of reserve? But such candour is met with hostility in most Christian communities. I learned this lesson emphatically during my early days in New York City after opening my heart to a pastor. His response was to label me as sick and led astray by a guru therapist. He also shut down the small prayer group I belonged to, even as we were making great strides in healing and growth by following just the kind of approach advocated by Wesley. When I protested, he summarily dismissed me from the congregation and then reneged on an agreement to let me voice an appeal. Ironically, the only place I could be real and unburden my heart without fear of condemnation was in the office of that very therapist slandered as a guru. Yet in our temples of intolerance, the Pharisees continue to enjoy the adulation of compliant allies in the pews, who in turn are equally ready to dole out their own derivative condemnation on afflicted brothers and sisters in Christ. The congregant Pharisee may be identified by his tendency to speak rather than listen, despite Scripture's admonitions to the contrary, to impose rather than understand, to instruct us in what we should do and even how we should feel. Though, as J.R.R. Tolkien notes, advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise. This brand of Pharisee gives it unbidden, often with some self-serving avowal of authentication such as, God told me, I'm saying this out of love, or this is coming from my heart, and so on. He bears out Thoreau's observation that there are few men who do not love better to give advice than to give assistance. Patronizing and condescending, this Pharisee may be identified by his penchant for glib and simplistic formulae, quick fixes, facile decrees, empty platitudes and cliches. If only you would pray more, read your Bible more, Get your heart right with God. Listen to Him. Take your eyes off of yourself. Let go of your anger. Forgive and forget. Etc. He is like those false comforters who came to Job in his afflictions and told him, Submit to God and be at peace with Him. Accept instruction from His mouth. Return to the Almighty. Remove wickedness. Pray to Him. And so on. Implicit in such advice, of course, is an assumption the person's suffering springs from his own shortcomings, negligence in spiritual disciplines, or even outright rebellion towards God. With outward show of righteousness, 
These suggestions are steeped in accusation, so that the Christian who finds himself in anguish of heart may never be more lonely than when he is in church. So the afflicted in Christ, even a hero of faith now being perfected in suffering, one who dares reveal his deepest hurts, fears, and insecurities, struggles, setbacks, or embarrassments, finds himself shunned and censured by his fair-weather brethren, who, when compassion is most called for, cudgel rather than comfort the troubled brother in their midst. What are they but clanging symbols who have not love? Pharisees in the World Quotes I have never come across anyone in whom the moral sense was dominant, who was not heartless, cruel, vindictive, log-stupid, and entirely lacking in the smallest sense of humanity. Moral people, as they are termed, are simple beasts. Oscar Wilde He was on stage talking about obscenity, and talking about the obscenity of a certain word compared to the obscenity of segregation. That's pretty insightful, and you can still see it today. The obscenity of the details of something, as opposed to the larger obscenities, whether it's war or racism or prejudice. U.S. comedian Jimmy Tingle, talking about renowned stand-up comic Lenny Bruce. The world is still deceived with ornament. In law, what plea so tainted and corrupt, but being seasoned with a gracious voice, obscures the show of evil? Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice It was late, and the trains were infrequent at that hour. I entered the subway at an unfamiliar station in New York City and realized after I'd swiped my metro car to go through the turnstile that I was on the northbound platform when I needed to be heading south towards Brooklyn. There was no way to cross over without leaving the station, so I went out through the turnstiles, crossed the street above ground, and descended to the other side. My MetroCard being an unlimited monthly pass for the entire subway network, there was no question that I had paid my fare for the southbound trip. But this did not satisfy the tollbooth clerk on the southbound side, even though she was quite at liberty to let me through the turnstile, as other clerks would do in similar situations. The rules say you have to wait 18 minutes, she said aggressively. The 18-minute rule she referred to was meant to prevent someone gaming the system by swiping a single card multiple times at the same set of turnstiles while selling rides to other passengers. Obviously, that wasn't the case here, nor was it even possible at that late hour when there was hardly another soul to be found in the station. I tried to explain the situation to her, but she merely interrupted with her first assertion repeated more loudly, this time accompanied by some New York expletive charm, whereupon I replied with some New York charm of my own. Alas, this world is peppered with such tin-pot tyrants exploiting their little brief authority, enforcing the letter of a rule, but not its spirit or intention. Masqueraders as servants of righteousness are not confined to the church, but are busy in institutions at every level of state and society, government, corporations, associations, assemblies, and yes, toll booths. 
Pharisees in government. Quote, The Democratic establishment and Republican establishment scream at each other, and meanwhile the wars that they both want continue, the economic exploitation that they want continue. So levels of volume of alleged screaming when you're talking about Democratic Pharisees and Republican Sadducees doesn't indicate actual animosity. It's a way of drowning out some people who might be attempting to divine a measure of truth and freedom. Sam Husseini, speaking on Democracy Now! July the 17th, 2018. The United States has long been plagued by gun violence, from domestic disputes that spiral into murder to nightmarish mass shootings at schools and cultural events, that Congress has failed throughout to legislate any meaningful prohibitions on gun ownership speaks volumes about the capacity of those in power to ignore the obvious. It takes a huge amount of effort to do so. Government, military and corporate spokesmen, along with other leading peddlers of nonsense, are ever weaving their knots of twisted logic to countenance acts of brutality and destruction against planet and peoples. For example, in March 2007, U.S. Army spokesman Viktor Petrenko justified forcing reporters to delete photos showing civilian casualties of U.S. military action by saying, There is a very real risk that the images or videography will capture visual details that are not as they originally were. Huh? He is basically calling on photojournalists to overlook the obvious so as not to puncture the delusions of our political elites. Absurd, illogical and breathtakingly stupid. In this day and age, as in any other, it is our prophetic job to insist on stating the obvious and to demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We may also observe in such political machinations how the Prince of the Air is at work in human institutions, manipulating the movers and shakers of this world, yet as witless as he is wicked. For all his superficial cleverness, the reflection of divine glory in the accuser is but a pale flicker of its former self, rendering him a spiritual moron. As Dumbledore says of Voldemort in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, and his knowledge remained woefully incomplete, Harry. That which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend. Of house-elves and children's tales, of love, loyalty and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing. Nothing! That they all have a power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, is a truth he has never grasped. Church and State Quotes Such pious goings-on in all departments of church and state that a fellow does not know who'll cheat him next. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin A man compounded of law and gospel is able to cheat a whole country with his religion. Benjamin Franklin Religion functions best outside the political order and often as a challenge to the political order. Randall Balmer, Chronicle of Higher Education, June the 23rd, 2006. Separation of church and state 
is a cherished cornerstone of liberty in the United States, enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution, where Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It is right up there with freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Among its early champions was Thomas Jefferson, who praised this wall of separation because he believed that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. But this wall has been crumbling, at least since George W. Bush was installed in the White House in 2001, inculcating a polarized and polarizing worldview of us and them, saved and unsaved, Christian and Muslim, with us or with the terrorists, and so on, all manifestations of law hard at work in government. In the worst traditions of the Pharisees, presidential utterances to this day remain littered with scriptural reference. Thus Donald Trump, in his first address to the UN General Assembly in 2018, managed to sandwich his denouncements of other nations and threats to totally destroy them between an opening call to the Almighty God who made us all and his closing benediction God bless the nations of the world, God bless the USA. Our Washington speechwriters, familiar with the letter of the Bible, know nothing of its spirit. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, men who devoted their lives to religious study, they are entrenched in error because they do not know the scriptures beneath the surface meanings of words, nor the power of God. Their hearts veil to truth. They supply the White House pulpit with blasphemies and lies. In her book, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, Michelle Goldberg warns Christian nationalists are not only determined to integrate church and state, but to pack the courts with judges loyal to their agenda. And journalist Chris Hedges, a former seminarian, warns of dominionism with its convert or you're exterminated mentality and the belief that massive catastrophic violence can be used as a cleansing agent to purge the world. And it's not just the merger of church and state, but of church with imperial ambition, as author and professor Cornel West observes, They are imperial Christians. They have lost the prophetic fervor of the very Jesus Christ that they proclaim as their savior. In fact, they're willing to sell their souls for a mess of imperial pottage in the name of the very Jesus who was put to death by the Roman Empire, the empire of its day. Theocratic governments are notorious as agents of atrocity. Belt buckles worn by German soldiers in World War II were inscribed with the words Gott mit uns, or God with us. Hitler portrayed Christianity as the foundation of our national morality, claimed to be acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator, and thanked Providence and the Almighty for choosing me of all people to be allowed to wage this battle. Beware the yeast of the political Pharisees. Afterward.
quotes. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Shakespeare, Hamlet. Guilt is a useless emotion. Marlon Brando. No such thing as a guilty pleasure. If you enjoy it, it's just a pleasure. Simon Mayo, Kermode and Mayo Film Review Podcast, April the twentieth, two thousand and eighteen. We are born to do benefits, and I pray this work may benefit you, dear reader, that it may usher you back into an Eden of the mind, a boundless land where there are no commandments, no notion of good and evil, no forbidden tree. For the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has been struck down, uprooted, never more to grow. Like the fig tree withered by Christ, it shall never bear fruit again. Now we know only to love the Lord our God with all our heart, and to love others as we love ourselves. Thus we may confidently return to the eastern edge of paradise, where stands the guardian cherubim of flaming sword. And he, seeing upon us the mark of God, whom none may withhold, shall stand aside to readmit us. The victory has been won, beloved, and we have been crowned with the victor's laurel, with all its benefits and rewards, without having to do anything. Let us live and move and have our being in that victory, child of God. Thou art worthy. You bear heaven's eternal and indelible seal of approval, and let us remember that our core motivations are in accordance with the will of God, our intentions and desires, His intentions and desires, and even our best efforts to sin would be futile, as there is no forbidden boundary to cross, either visible or invisible. Law's only brainchild, its only gift to humanity. Is the invention of sin, but love's child, Christ's gift to humanity, is grace, the unmerited favor of God. Of course, the modern-day Pharisees, pastors, priests, and preachers, along with the leaders, litigators, and corporations of this world, fear our freedom and would oppose and slander it at every turn. The Church would revive, if it could, that phantom fiction of the law. And with it, the fiction of an old self would wield that law as a righteousness-defining instrument, would shame us into asking what we must do to inherit eternal life, and pile new burdens upon us. And the world, meanwhile, with its calorie counters, diet sheets, and low-fat logic, would add its insults to these injuries. But we, as ambassadors of freedom, knowing Christ has driven a stake through the heart of the law. Are empowered to embrace and embody the truth that sets us free, cutting away the choking briars of legalism as we live in the spirit of life. We may be badmouthed for our views, even exiled and excommunicated, but better to endure these whips and scorns than submit to a spiritually bankrupt mindset that is destined to perish. Christ has set us free. Therefore, have no fear, anointed one. Burst out of the old wineskin and join me in flight on the wings of the Spirit. The end.
You've been listening to the concluding audiobook installment of The Gourmet Gospel. To get your copy of the ebook and or paperback and or audiobook, go to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T, and to the relevant book page. Until next time, this has been the Poet Prophetic Podcast with Abdiel Leroy.